Um, I want to start, you know, I'll, we'll talk about the disclosures in a second, but the main disclosure I want to make is that this is a topic that we could potentially be talking for, if not days, weeks, uh, about some of the possible and emerging indications for the use of botulinum neurotoxins. And I have tried to condense a lot of the stuff that's out there and many years of experience and practice and clinical studies, et cetera, in a 50-minute talk. Uh, I will stick around afterwards if anybody, you know, so because, you know, some of the things I'm going to go through fairly quickly, but if you have any specific indication that you want a little bit more information, I'll be glad to stick around and speak with you after we're done here. Uh, this is a very near and dear, you know, topic for me. I have actually been doing this for many years, and I love using neurotoxins for a variety of different indications, most of which also disclosure are non-FDA approved or off-label, so I just be aware of that. So we're going to review the proven and proposed mechanisms of action of botulinum toxins. Uh, we're going to contrast the different products that are commercially available in the United States uh, briefly and describe some of the emerging role and novel indications for which we could use botulinum toxins in specifically in pain management. As a disclosure, I am, I've been on the Speaker's Bureau of uh, three of the four uh, toxins that are manufactured in the United States uh, or that I actually approve, Allergan, that uh, manufactures and um, uh, distributes Botox, MERS for Xeomin, and Ipsen for Dysport. These are all the type A toxins that are available in the United States. There's a type B, and we'll talk about that in a second as well. <clears throat> so the thought behind all this is that the neurotoxins have started to show a lot of promise in terms of, uh, of being neuromodulators, in terms of the chronic pain cycle that a lot of chronic pain conditions actually develop into. And the concern here is that it's, it's a difficult topic to develop in the sense that the conditions that we're talking about are quite variable and there are, you know, they have a lot of different characteristics. The patients are very different. And one thing that makes toxins particularly difficult to use in terms of having pooled data and then results uh, published, et cetera, is that not only is it depending on which one you use, but also the dose that you use, the targeting that you're doing, where exactly do you inject it? Are you inject it intramuscularly, if it's subcutaneous, if it's you know, near a tendon, et cetera, et cetera. So this actually becomes really complex. Not that the injection per se or handling this is that complex. It's just that when we're trying to pull data for outcome studies, it becomes actually quite challenging. Now, this are the, and hopefully it's going to be the only probably mention that I'm going to do about the specific products here, but basically we have four products that are available in the United States. The first and foremost thing that I want to clarify is that botulinum toxins are not equal to Botox. Botox is a specific toxin. It's been the one that has been around the longest, both in the United States and worldwide. And you see specifically that's this one here. This is the 100-unit vial of Botox. It also comes in 200. That is the orange vial. And then the 50-unit vial that is exclusively used for cosmetic purposes, that it's red. 
We have the type B toxin that is available uh, in the United States as myoblock. Uh, we have the other toxin that has been probably the, long, the second longest, uh, you know, or, or oldest toxin available worldwide, which is avobotulinum toxin A or Dysport. And we have Xeomin that is the newest one in the market in the United States that comes in five, I'm sorry, 50 and 100 unit vials. This port comes in 300 and 500 unit vials. Yes, sir. Uh, well, it's a different serotype. Uh, they all have, I mean, the, the type A versus the type B, the, the most, the, the probably easiest way to define the difference is that they all have a mechanism of action where they inhibit the release of some neurotransmitter from the synaptic, you know, from the presynaptic terminal into the synaptic cleft, and then the action that occurs uh, in the effector organ, and they target different proteins of that complex that fuses the membrane of the vesicle, and then releases the the content of the vesicle into the synaptic uh, cleft. So type A and type B actually target different different proteins of that of that uh, docking mechanism, and then release, but in the end result is actually the same. You could because uh, even though the same mechanism is at play here, the side effect profile has been observed to be a little bit different. And one, just to, I mean, without getting into a lot of this because we have to go over a lot of things, for instance, type B has been seen and observed for, for many years that it actually, one of the side effects that it has that is much more prevalent than in the others is that it produces dry mouth, for instance. And it is probably the preferred toxin when you're injecting patients that have very severe sialuria, when they have Parkinson's disease, when they have ALS, when you want to reduce the burden of saliva that they're producing and choking on it, et cetera. And that could be one of the things that you could potentially use. So depending on what the indication is, you can use one or the other. So, you know, basically that's in a nutshell. Yeah. So these are the toxins that are available in the United States. I've named them here uh, from, you know, they're, they're, they have the non-proprietary name, which is not really a, gene you know, a genetic name, but it's, a, uh, it's you know, onabotulinum toxin A, which is Botox, abobotulinum toxin A, which is this port, Inco, uh, botulinum toxin A, Xeomin, and Rima botulinum toxin B, which is myoblock. Uh, as, as you can see, all A, except this one that's type B, different forms of formulations, different processes for the manufacture and the production of these. And the other important thing, in addition to the process, is actually that the assays with which the potency is actually measured for all these toxins are different. The way that it works, I mean, and keep this in mind, this is key, very, very, very important. They're actually dosed in units because they are, you know, biological compounds. They're not milligrams, micrograms, anything like that. MLs, it's units. Now, depending on how much diluent you put into the vial, you can make so many units per cc or per half cc, et cetera, but they're units. And the units are actually based on the LD50 for different strains of rats and mice. So what they do is they inject intraperitoneally in a specific strain of a mice, of, 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 of a mouse, and then what actually kills half of them becomes one unit, basically. But it's actually different strains, different methods of production. So 
one big important thing about these toxins is that they're not interchangeable, so you cannot really say, you know, one is more equivalent to the other. There really are different compounds, per se. One other thing that I want to point out here is just the indications. All of them are approved by the FDA for the use in cervical dystonia. This is what this CD stands for, okay? All of them. Then you have... Of course, Botox that has been around the longest has the most indications, including strabismus, blepharospasm, cranial seven disorders. Usually, this is like your hemifacial spasm, uh, axillary hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating you know, in the armpit, uh, cosmetic, upper and lower limb spasticity, more recently lower limb, chronic migraine headaches, to specific disease entity I will talk about briefly, and hyperactive bladder. The others, as you can see, CD, this one only for cervical dystonia, uh, this board, uh, about a year and a half ago or so, got approval for upper limb spasticity, specific muscles in the upper limb. It's also approved for cosmetics. So is incobotulinum toxin or seomin. This one's also for blepharospasm. And, you know, again, these are the only one that is going to be really on label that we're going to be discussing here today. It's going to be briefly, I'm going to mention chronic migraine. But all the others are going to be all painful conditions that are really not, uh, these are not approved for. So this is some of the stuff that I was uh, mentioning before, specifically this one. The units are not interchangeable, okay? There's no conversions and no factors, no conversion factors are recommended. What's, what one, just to give you a little bit of an idea of how, why is this um, so, is that specifically if you try to say a ratio such as a, well, one unit of, of Botox is approximately three units of this sport, just for the sake of argument, because we've observed that when we use it, et cetera. Well, what some more specific studies have actually shown is that it may be different, from different for different muscles. So different parts of your body, different muscles specifically, may require more or less of one toxin versus the other. So that is why what we should always do, particularly when you're doing labeled indications, be that blepharospasm, cervical dystonia, et cetera, you don't convert from one to the other, but rather you start with what the manufacturer re recommends for that specific indication, for that specific muscle, for that specific toxin. Okay? So that's one of the things. Uh, the other one is that none are approved for use in children, even though they're actually extensively used, particularly in children with cerebral palsy for, uh, you know, spastic, uh, hemipar you know, uh, hemiplegia, hemiparesis, et cetera. Uh, a box warning that all of them carry, all of them, the FDA has had them do this. Number one, may spread to distant area from the injection site, so it may produce symptoms consistent with the botul botul you know, botulinum toxin symptoms elsewhere in the body. Uh, and the risk is probably greatest in children treated for spasticity, which is funny. I mean, kind of almost amusing that it's this, but they're not approved for children. But that, the FDA has that in the label, which is an interesting thing there. So now, uses, you can see, you know, dystonia, spasticity, tremors, cosmetic, even for wound healing. Sometimes there have been some studies, plastic surgeons using this in the face to actually try to paralyze temporarily some muscles so that the healing of a scar in the face may be a little bit more cosmetically uh, pleasing because you don't have all the movement that you could have. Uh, of course, cosmetic for the reasons that a lot of people actually are familiar with. Blepharospasm, GI for achalasia, anismus, or even for obesity. I mean, this is just all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, GU, and then, of course, pain management. 
In terms of the pain management, I'm going to mention some of these indications. I'm going to give you a kind of bird's eye view of this. Myofascial pain, pain, pain syndromes, both in the upper and lower back, thoracic outlet performance, chronic low back pain, head and neck pains of different origins, uh, including occipital neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia, other atypical face and head and, and neck pain, as well as TMJ pain, for which I actually use it quite a bit and it's actually quite, quite effective many times. Intractable joint pain, okay, that's an interesting one. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Epicondylitis, lateral epicondylitis, plantar fasciitis, other focal neuropathies, even some more generalized neuropathies. We'll mention a little bit about that as well. Vascular pain caused, say, by Raynaud's and post-radiation fibrosis. These are some of them. So how did this, the, the first thing that I, that I also want, that I, that I want you to recognize is that whenever I see some, a list like that, I say, well, that looks too good to be true. That's probably a lot of, a lot of hocus pocus. And the, the interesting thing about it is that a lot of this laundry list of conditions have, there's evidence out there, albeit at times being a small case series, a personal experience, a lot of stuff that has been published in abstracts or not even published in the, in the medical literature, literature etc., but there's actually plenty of evidence out there. Um, the initial thought came, how, you know, the initial thought about how this work came from the cervical dystonia literature. And the first thing that happened in the folks that were doing plenty of this, particularly a couple of movement disorder neurologists, they started realizing something that they were injecting patients with cervical dystonia for which this was effective and it was in the first you know indication by the FDA that got approved but they were noticing two things number one that a lot of these patients had a lot of pain and the they were getting pain relief before they would notice any improvement in the posture and the spasms so that was preceding that and sometimes it would actually last longer than the patient's improvement in posture and spasms etc so some of these uh, earlier, you know, investigators, they say, huh, you know, there may be something, there may be something that, that may be an additional mechanism, you know, here. What, what's really going on here? So the thought was repetitive muscle contraction, abnormal posture, lead to pain. So that is, is that it? But they say, you know, maybe there's something else. So that's what, I, you know, I just told you about that there, that they were seeing some of these observations. Another one that was actually very in interesting was the serendipitous finding for the use in what now it's called chronic migraine. There was this, uh, you know, head and neck, um, of, you know, uh, an ENT uh, surgeon that was doing mostly cosmetic, you know, nose surgeries and the like in the Beverly Hills area and in, in, out in California, in L.A., and he started noticing that a lot of the patients that he was doing a lot of cosmetic Botox for, were coming back and they were telling him, oh, Doug, you know, I, I, my headaches are better, you know, and he's going like, hmm, really, where the hell did that come from? So he started to actually notice this and he started to note some of those observations that that led to a bunch of other studies that actually come and that led to the preempt trials that Allergan did that ended up getting the approval for chronic migraine, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So some what, what's behind all this? I told you already that the mechanism of action is inhibition, or I don't think I mentioned that, but I'm going to say it right now, is inhibition of the release of acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft, a presynaptic inhibition, okay, a blockade, and that leads to 
doing the effect on the effector organ, generally in muscle, that you have decreased contraction. But how, where does it, what's, what's at play here with pain per se? And there are some lab studies, some in vitro and then some in vivo studies in animals that have shown that, for instance, the, this one, the inhibition of the release of acetylcholine and substance P, okay, in the iris of rats or of rabbits, inhibition of the release of substance P and acetylcholine uh, in cultured DRG neurons that are actually induced by capsaicin, so they inhibits that. Substance P inhibition in the embryonic, embryonic uh, dorsal root ganglio model. These are some nice, very, very elegant studies that have shown this. Uh, Dose-dependent inhibition of CGRP, so I just start you know, getting some of these names, calcitonin-gene-related peptide, glutamate, and even FOS, which is a product of the CFOS gene. gene. That has actually, they, there are studies in animals that have actually shown this, that specifically these are with Botox specifically, no reason to believe why the others don't cause this as well. That could be the mechanism that is at play here. So <clears throat> how is it that, in a, in a schematic way, how is it that this, that this, we believe this works out? Well, in the periphery, there's release of glutamate and peptides that actually, as you can see them here, glutamate, substance P, CGRP, that lead to what we consider being the peripheral sensitized state in, you know, in the peripheral nervous system. This creates a sort of feedback mechanism that goes centrally and actually it stimulates and produces central sensitization that in turn will do some antidromic activation and make the whole thing worse and worse and just kind of perpetuates this whole cycle. Now, what we think is going on here is that with the botulinum toxin, specifically botulinum toxin type A, it actually blocks that at the periphery, it's not anything central, but then this actually dampens this whole cycle and then leads to decrease in that chronic pain state that is maintained by this vicious cycle of going back and forth. Right? So the thought right now is that the common link here is that some of these neurotransmitters may be co-located in the same vesicle that maybe have acetylcholine, substance P, CGRP, glutamate, and when you are inhibiting the release of all these neurotransmitters, you end up modulating or decreasing that peripheral sensitization that leads to central sensitization, et cetera. Right. So these are you know, the neurotransmitters and then when they get released there. So let's talk about, a little bit about the clinical applications. The, uh, just want to mention that the FDA has approved, this happened about three years ago at this point, the use of specifically Botox for chronic migraine, which is a disease entity in and of itself. It's not that a migraine that has been going on chronically, but rather it's a specific international headache society criteria for diagnosis, to be used for prophylaxis of chronic migraine. Not for tension type headaches, okay? Different, completely different condition. The mechanism is supposed to, you know, it's, it's theorized to be uh, related to you know, this release of this neurotransmitter around the trigeminal nucleus, so it's in the, in the periphery, you know, in the scalp, in the face, etc. Uh, and there are, you know, the, the initial trials for this were challenging because it was difficult to predict who would be a responder. I, I've been using this from way before 
there was a defined specific injection paradigm and special dosing and specific dosing points, et cetera. And we used to use these for, you know, any kind of headache that wasn't responding well to other stuff. And we used it for tension type headaches, for patients that have like kind of menstrual type migraines, ocular type migraines. And there were some observations over the years that led to some of the developments of how it's dosed nowadays. But particularly in the beginning, there was a concept of the patient that has the exploding versus the imploding headache. That's the patient that you ask them, does it feel like your head is going to explode? Or does it feel like you have a vice that is kind of going like this? Still a migraine, but the, 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 how they feel. And it, it was, for years, it was believed that the, the patient that had the imploding type headache probably would be a better responder. I have observed that multiple times. I still continue asking patients about that. Then the patients that had the ocular type migraine or the menstrual type migraine also tended to have a better response to this. However, this has morphed into what we're going to be talking about in a minute. So in the International Headache Society classification, there's a specific disease entity that is called chronic migraine. And the, just in a nutshell, really quick, because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, basically a couple of important caveats here. Number one, this is only for prophylaxis. This is not for abortive type treatment. This is something that you typically use when you need prophylaxis. So that's typically with somebody that abortive treatments are either causing side effects or still not controlling the condition. But the specific condition of chronic migraine, and you know, the reason behind that is that it doesn't work right away. This is not something that you inject today and it's going to work immediately within hours. It takes generally anywhere from three, five, seven, ten days to really start exerting its effect. Okay? It's taken up by the presynaptic neurons and then the whole blockade, et cetera, occurs, and then is when you see the effects, and it may take actually a few days, uh, even up to you know, a week and a half, a couple of weeks. But defining chronic migraine, a couple of important characteristics. Number one, you need to have more than, fifth, greater than or equal to 15 days of headache per month. Okay? That's a lot. That's like every other day, right? Now, there has to be eight of those days or more that are migraine days. And the important thing to keep in mind when you're interviewing some of these patients is that this is the typical question that I, how many days a month do you have a headache? And they say, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, a bunch. Uh, you know, they cannot tell you. You say, okay, so over the last week, how many times? Well, you know, like two. Okay, two times four, that's about, that doesn't meet the criteria, clearly, right? But then you ask the other question. You say, how many days throughout the entire month you did not have a headache at all? You were perfectly okay. And suddenly they say, Oh, gee, uh, three days. So what's, what's happened is not that they're being, these, you know, that they're trying to deceive you or they don't remember or anything like that. It's more most of the patients that suffer from this condition, they learn to work through it, to function with the headache, but they're only dysfunctional when they have the migraine, the real bad one, okay? So when you start asking the right questions, you realize that, in fact, yes, they actually meet the criteria for this. Usually this is... Uh, a condition that gets much, you know, much worse with exercise, with any kind of exertion, any kind of movement makes it worse. Uh, and, and important in the definition, any days in which they saw or felt a headache was coming and they took one of their medications and the headache got better or got away or, or, or went away, is a headache day. Okay? 
It's just that they aborted the headache, but it was a headache day. So when you start looking into that and you start looking around, you're going to find a lot of people that actually suffer from this, and they have gone undiagnosed for many, many, many years, even by neurologists that are actually the, the specialists in this area. I'm a physiatrist, but I actually end up doing a lot of diagnosis for this condition, and we have a lot of very happy, happy campers, very, very happy clients with this. Okay? So the chronic migraine injection paradigm is 31 sites around the you know, forehead, temporal area, occipital area, uh, upper neck, et cetera. Five units per site, that's for Botox, and that's what the FDA has approved because of the specific studies that have been done with the preempt trials. Okay? Very effective for that condition, and that's the only one that is FDA approved. Moving down then to the, to the next one, I'm going to start talking about the stuff that is not FDA approved now. Okay, and some of the yes, sir, please. That's a great point. Thanks a lot for bringing it up. Yes, actually, you use that this even if it's unilateral. You do it on both sides. That has been the I mean the patients that were enrolled in these studies. This actually developed this this um, this protocol was developed after pulling data from a lot of experience and a lot of studies and. There used to be, dating back to when this was started, there were three approaches of injecting a patient. One was called follow the pain. Patient that had pain only on the, on the right side, you would inject only the right side. In fact, if the patient had more pain that was more frontal versus more occipital, you would inject more in that area. The other one was called the fixed dose approach where you would inject all those places regardless of where the pain was. And the most commonly used approach that we did in the past was the mixed approach, where you would actually inject all those points and dose it a little bit more or less in different areas of the scalp, depending on where the pain was typically uh, familiar, you know, present, etc. But this, the, a lot of the patients that got, in, that, are invo that got involved in these studies had unilateral uh, pain. It is not going to be, it's, it's fairly uncommon to find somebody that says it's always the right side, it's always the left side. What you will see more commonly is going to be say, you know, sometimes it's definitely worse, on, or, or usually it's on one side, but it kind of, it just take, take your pick and it just decides where to, where to attack you. But it's actually, this is the simple thing about this, is that specific sites that are predefined, five units per side, you don't really have to do a whole lot of thinking. It's actually pretty straightforward. Yes, sir. Well, the, how often do you exceed it? You generally shouldn't because this is 155 units. The studies, in fact, they allow to, to have a little bit of an increase. I believe that the highest in the studies was 185 or so when they did the preempt trial. And you rarely really need to go there because for the most part, this it's either you're going to get a response or you don't get a response. You rarely are going to have to exceed it. I tend to maybe have a little bit more on patients that have concomitant other things, such as somebody that has a maybe more neck pain, somebody that has a TMJ problem, that you could actually do that. But exceeding the 155 is not for the sake of you're going to get a better response for that. You know that, number one, the dose is not going to be harmful because, you know, again, we dose patients that have spasticity, severe spasticity in the 600, even 800 range at times, so this is going to be non-harmful. But one other thing that came about from this study is that was an original study that came earlier, you know, and before this trial or this protocol was developed, was that patients were dose low, mid, and high dose. And 
in one of the trials that they did that the patients that had the low and the mid dose did better than the patients that had the high dose. So that's where the modulation part comes into play, that maybe it is that you just want to dampen, but you don't want to knock it all out. So by, you know, that's what makes it a little bit harder, trickier, that you don't want to do too much, because too, like in this case, doing much more is not necessarily better. Well, you, you mix it always with, per the manufacturer recommendations, normal saline without preservative, no lidocaine, no depomedrol, no anything like that. And depending on what the indication is, you can make it more dilute or less dilute. When you're talking about specifically for chronic migraines, what's recommended is in a 200-unit vial, you actually mix it with four cc's to make it 50 units per vial. But if you're using, say, I dilute a little bit more when I'm doing spasticity for large muscles that I wanted to spread more, et cetera, but that's kind of like what's... So for this, you stick with no lidocaine? No. Only total four cc's for the 200. You're using 100-unit vials. You use two cc's per vial, et cetera. Right. So let's start talking about some of the other things. I'm going to try to run through these uh, because I, I, want to, I want to make you aware of some of these things that you may encounter and you say, you know, this could be a possibility. So theories and uh, how could it work in myofascial pain syndrome, which is something that's actually quite, quite prevalent. There are a bunch of theories, but the most prevailing theories are either a reduction of the muscle spasm that actually leads to the improvement of the symptoms that could be what's causing it, or the specific uh, intrinsic analgesic effects of, of the botulinum toxins. Now let's talk about a couple of the myofascial pain syndromes that we may encounter that there's some evidence about. Specifically, let's talk about the fact that in a lot of the stuff that has been published, most consistent and better uh, responses have been seen in the cervical thoracic region as opposed to the lumbosacral. Yes, ma'am. There's all sorts of stuff out there. There's against placebo. There's against uh, there's patients that have been taken from from like uh, halfway through the study just set to the other arm. There's uh, a lot of observational stuff. There's a lot of uh, retrospective stuff that has been done here. Well, there is... There's, there's, I mean, what I, what I can tell you of what I've observed is that there are, number one, very important thing. It looks probably you are a little bit more familiar and more experienced with this, but the typical muscle for oral, you know, facial usual, you know, problems are usually going to be your masseter, your temporalis. But there's other muscles that are deeper that are as important or even more important. The pterygoids, you know, the internal, the external, uh, other muscles like that that could be actually quite helpful in, when you're injecting for these conditions. Well, that's, it's, it's hard, it's really hard to, to tell with your clinical exam because some of those, you know, some of those, you know, and you, you can, you can to some degree, but I mean, it's, uh, I, I used to not inject any of those muscles and the results were sort of so-so and injecting them, but again, it's only modulating. You have to actually use usually very small doses and you could actually alter some of the mechanics that you have in your, in your bite and in your, And, and, 
And certainly, I remember that this, there are, again, two competing theories here. Are you looking at decreasing the contraction of the muscle, or could it be like an intrinsic effect in terms of the modulation of redu reduction in the neurotransmitters that are released? And if you use too much, you're going to, this, you know, you're going to have a, an imbalance in the body. It's probably going to make things worse, actually. So it's just little. Okay? Keep that in mind. I, I know you're a little bit skeptical about that. We can talk about that a little bit later. But, um, you know, I'm just going to mention some of these things. And I can tell you that for headaches, for instance, there's evidence that sometimes by increasing the dose and even injecting the, the different areas, you could actually have worsening of the condition. So certainly these things are potentially at play here. Okay. But I'll, I'll talk to you about that a little bit more you want outside so I can go through the rest of the stuff here. But, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, keep in mind there's two potential mechanisms going on, and that could be a play there. Um, now, one specific type of um, myofascial pain that is seen often, particularly in the more, you know, older population, is something that's been called the forward head syndrome. I'll show you a picture of that. Is somebody that is kind of like, you know, like this kind of forward, the, the whole neck is forward. These are folks that have actually very poor posture. I'll show you some of the pictures. And here, for this condition, it's actually quite helpful as an, as an adjunct or as an, in addition to the physical therapy that they need to actually improve their posture. So this is a typical example. Here is the, what the normal and natural alignment of the, like kind of like, plumb line of alignment in the human body should be, anterior tragus, anterior portion of the uh, trapezius muscle going through the hip, etc. And you see this individual here who has a very, very marked displacement forward. This is at least a solid probably four or five finger breadths of, of translation forward. Similarly with this lady here. And of course you see somebody, somebody younger that has actually a horrendous posture as you can see there. And it has some of this around the shoulders going like this. And they, they have tightening of some, of some muscles. They have eccentric lengthening of other muscles. And what you can do as an adjunct to help them with physical therapy is that some of those muscles that are particularly tight, you could actually inject with small amounts to kind of decrease the contraction of those muscles and then help with the physical therapist to actually stretch and then improve the posture of these patients. <clears throat> It could be, it could make it all worse. Yes. And that's this specific, that, that is a potential drawback of this, that number one, you have to, I mean, the, one of the challenges here is that if I inject him with 10 units in the middle trapezius and I inject him with 10 units with similar conditions, maybe his response would be a lot more vigorous than his. So the, the specific response of the person is a potential issue here. And even in, in a gentleman, that the one that I showed you that has a very severe displacement forward, you have to resist the temptation to say, I'm going to inject a really hard, high dose because a high, I mean, and a high dose is very relative. You know, what's a high dose? It depends. I mean, for some muscles, in the, one individual may be actually low for other individuals. Well, could you also change the so that you're spreading the so that you have it more down deep so you're spreading a less amount? 
you you could, and that is something that would come into play if you think that what happened was that it actually there was spread to a muscle that you didn't want this to, it to spread to. Okay, but if that's not the issue and it was just probably too much for the muscle, no matter how you dilute it, it's still going to be in that muscle and it's going to have the same effects. All right. So going back, I'm sorry. Um, for thoracic outlet syndrome, in somebody that actually had a condition such as the one that we saw with that forward displacement, it's actually not uncommon to see something like a neurogenic thoracic outlet where, you number one, it's actually at times you have to really look for it. It's hard to diagnose. There are some special nerve conduction techniques. We've described some of those using F-waves here. We described the American Journal of PMNR several years ago. But the main thing here is going to be targeting Sorry about that. Where did I go? Here. Targeting the scaling muscles, the anterior and the middle scaling particularly, and it's a little bit of technical difficulty injection with some risk of neurovascular injury, certainly. So you have to typically use either you want to use fluoroscopy, you want to use EMG guidance, ultrasound to see what the vessels are, et cetera. Okay, but that's a, a condition that you could potentially treat. Now, there have been some publications on this short series that had actually shown how uh, effective this could be in cases where you see that these anterior and the middle scaling are actually putting some sort of irritation pressure over the um, brachial plexus and they can actually, these patients may actually um, have a clinical picture similar to like a C6 radiculopathy there with that kind of radiating pattern of pain, usually without neck pain. It's going to be more like from the whole arm. Piriformis syndrome is one that has probably had the most evidence that have been actually studied both in small series for botulinum toxin A, botulinum toxin B as well. Uh, and the issue with, uh, with botulinum toxin B was that it was, it was shown that A was more effective than B and also had less side effects. So that's one of the things to consider. But again, the typical uh, scheme is going to be 100 units of Botox in in injected intramuscularly, also using targeting techniques. Typically, I do it with uh, EMG guided. I think it's a more functional injection and relatively simple to do. This is seen in patients that have sciatica, you know, sometimes actually quite often post-spinal surgery. And sometimes even patients that have got surgery that the main problem may have even been this to start. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Typically, you're going to have to make sure that you clear it with insurance first, and this is typically going to be somebody who has been recalcitrant to a lot of other things, which kind of introduces a little bit of a curveball there because you have somebody that has a harder, it's a harder to treat patient. Typically, I would use it in somebody that I have actually done plenty of physical therapy. We have done actually even corticosteroid injections and stretching and the like with good results, but it doesn't last, and then you look for something that lasts longer. Yes, sir, you have Into the muscle because it spreads very nicely. It's a, it's, a, it's a thick, but it's a small muscle. So you don't really have to look for the motor point. Looking for the motor point can be a little bit challenging, difficult, and time-consuming. Just as long as you're in the muscle, you're good. Okay? You, yes, sir. You can, and the thing is that particularly when you're injecting Botox, you want to make sure that you are... I mean, when you're injecting a, a corticosteroid, it, it's really peanuts, I mean, in terms of what, how much it costs. But 
you want to make sure that you get the approval to bill for the Botox because a vial of 100 units of Botox right now direct to your office is, I believe right now, the, the, it's 589 I believe it is the price right now, to be exact. So if you don't get paid, you're going to take a big hit. I mean, a big, big hit. I mean, you don't want to do that. It, it, it's whenever you, no, and, uh, and you're right. I mean, whenever you're doing for, say, for chronic migraine, for spasticity, or for any of these indications, you are actually billing for the procedure as well. The procedure for, you know, it's a, a, a muscle injection uh, guided or is it, you know, et cetera. I mean, there are, there are codes for this in addition to the medication. You don't want to just bill for the medication. You want to bill for your work as well. This is the piriformis syndrome. Uh, again, that, you know, that's a depiction of the injection. I'm going to try to run because we're kind of going a little bit, we're getting a little bit behind. Um, low back pain, there's been one study that was published in neurology back in 2001 where they have a very particular population, which was patients that had chronic pain that had been going on for greater than six months, but it was lateralized pain. These patients had no sciatica, no neurological impairment of any kind, and they have mostly right-sided or left-sided pain. What they did is they injected 200 units of Botox, 40 per side, you know, in, and, and then compared to folks that actually received normal saline, and it was shown, as you can see here, that both in the percentage of the VAS uh, scores at four and eight weeks, as well as the Oswestry low back pain questionnaire, these folks had actually statistically significant improvement. This was a very particular population, hard to find, honestly, in a chronic pain management you know, setting, very, very hard to find, and this hasn't been reproduced. So we're actually, you know, we're wondering if this is something that was simply a fluke or if it actually happened, uh, really. There, is, uh, there are other studies on this. The most interesting part of this one where they treated post-laminectomy syndrome patients was that they saw that there was a subgroup of small subgroup of patients that had cutaneous allodynia were the ones that actually responded the best. So that starts to tell you is a is it really muscular or is it kind of some other mechanism behind all this that is actually reducing that allodynia because of the substance P, C, G, R, P, etc. So again another interesting finding over the years. Talk about some of the novel uses now. Intractable joint pain. This is a, this is a, a topic of uh, humongous controversy, uh, both because it is expensive and there are many other things that you can do for joints, ultimately even joint replacements many times, so, and they're proven to be effective, but, but also because of the other things that could be accompanying this and could be masking other problems, such as soft tissue injuries, what, what is the mechanism behind here, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a, specifically a group out of the University of Minnesota and the VA in Minneapolis that has actually been working quite extensively on this, and they have some publications, and they have actually ongoing studies on this. Uh, the working theory is that it may be inhibiting yet another inflammatory mediator, which is interleukin-1, okay? And by doing that, maybe by blocking that interleukin-1 receptor complex, it provides analgesic effect on the joint, okay? They have reported, you know, a few things here. This is Dr. Karen uh, Marin Mahowal, actually, at, that, at the 
at the University of Minnesota that has actually done extensive work on this. And they have shown some trends and some improvements in some of these patients. The problem is that you do have many other therapies that you can use for some of these patients, and this actually becomes a little bit expensive. Now, jumping quickly to another thing is the, because I don't want to get too behind on this, is the use in post-arthroplasty intractable pain, which has been another subject of rather a lot of controversy also. But when you're dealing with somebody that has had a total knee replacement and they continue having pain after you go through this and rule out the correctable causes of low-grade infection, loosening hardware failure, what are you left with? Pretty much, after all that, you're pretty much left with opioids, I mean, generally with this patient. So anything that could potentially spare some of that opioid or that could actually help those patients is certainly a welcome tool in your armamentarium. That is still actually quite controversial, but there have been a number of case studies. I have done them several times with some mixed results. The problem with this is that you have to be definitely be super, super, super careful with the strict sterile technique. An infection there would be devastating. It means probably you have to revise the joint. I mean, it's a real mess. You want to work with your orthopedic surgeons to make sure that you're on board on the same page when doing this. Uh, and again, you know, opioid sparing, and I've had some experience with that, but it's something that may become a more widely used thing when more definition, you know, better definition about the dosing and the specific patient population that you should use it on become available. Now let's talk about other painful syndromes briefly. Uh, we have a study here. There are a couple studies that are interesting to contrast and compare, which are the use in lateral epigondylitis. In this first study, what they did, these folks here actually injected patients with 60 units of Dysport, and they injected the Dysport right on the lateral epicondyle where the maximal tenderness was actually noticed or was, uh, was actually... Um, um, you know, uh, reproduce with some good results in that in that population. They had some problems with a little bit of uh, grip strength, you know, reduction in the treatment group compared to the placebo, but actually favorable results. In contrast, you have another group that actually decided to inject 15 units of Botox, but not on the point of maximal tenderness over the epicondyle, but rather in the muscle mass distal, approximately five centimeters distal, so in the extensor mass of the muscles that extend the wrist. And these folks actually did not show that there was any significant difference over placebo. Also, begging the question, is not, could it be really that it's just a muscular thing or is it just the neurotransmitter that are behind all this that could be at play here? And just to com compare and contrast here, I gave you this one. There are a couple studies going briefly and quickly on plantar fasciitis, different techniques of injecting. And also, again, we're not targeting muscles here. It would be targeting the specific inflammatory component close to the you know, emphasis, et cetera, that had actually shown significant improvement in some of these populations using more objective pain scores, not only the visual analog score as well. As you can see here, there's yet another one that was an open label, a small, you know, very, very, very small study, as you can see here but you know, uh, also some improvement with this port as opposed to Botox in this case. Facial pain, and we can talk a little bit about this. This is a depiction of a patient that I treated for, this is a diagram, you know, I don't know, probably 10 years now. 
patients that have failed, you know, everything under the, pretty much under the sun, and had a very, very, very nasty, you know, dysesthesia and allodynia in this whole area here. It was a traumatic you know, injury that he had in a car accident, and you could barely touch him in that region. So it took a while to be able to convince him to let somebody inject him in that region. You know, let, you know touching was actually very painful. But this patient that had been on opiates for a very, very long time actually were able to wean him off completely, and he would get these injections every approximately three and a half or four months, and it's been going on for many years with excellent results. I have other patients as well that have actually done well with this, but some patients that haven't also. So it actually is just another tool that you can have in your armamentarium, and you're using a sub-Q or even intradermal at times, you know, sort of paradigm that's similar to the ones that is used for axillary hyperhidrosis. You like a grid pattern, and you inject a variable amount in the, all the distribution and of the painful area, and then you can several days later, five, seven days, ten days later, you can start seeing some of this reduction in pain. That could be uh, quite remarkable at times. <clears throat> Occipital neuralgia is another possibility. For occipital neuralgia, typically, the way that I have actually addressed this is patients where you do an occipital nerve block, they do okay, or actually they do quite well, but it just fades away fairly quick. And you say, well, we cannot do this every you know, couple of weeks or every two or three weeks. You know? So you can actually perform the similar technique using botulinum toxin as the agent instead of the local anesthetic and the transenolone or whatever other steroid you're using. And you can certainly get, uh, in some patient, patients, a much longer lasting relief than you would get with their general greater occipital nerve block. Of course, there are other things that you can do as well for this, you know, from radiofrequency stimulators and other things. But certainly this is something that is way less um, invasive than some of the other things that you could do. I'm kind of running out of time here, but I'm going to try to go over the last couple ones that I have. This one is particularly remarkable and very, very, very interesting in the sense that you could have patients that have Raynaud's syndrome, that this could be a disease-modifying agent in the sense that some of these patients have, it alters their lifestyle completely to the point that some of them may have such pain in the fingertips and such vascular problems that some may even require amputations of the distal phalanges of their digits, et cetera. In fact, I mean, this is actually a study that was published in the journal Hand Surgery uh, five, uh, six years ago, where they, in the, this is at the University of Illinois, where they actually treated the, the hand surgeons there, patients that were at risk of actually losing distal, you know, fingers because of poor uh, vascular supply have actually failed many other interventions, and in fact, some of them have already had distal, you know, finger amputations. And they used this technique where they saw an improvement in blood flow and reduction in pain, and actually a disease-modifying effect. In fact, um, this is a picture of a patient that I'm treating for this condition. Hard to see because of the light, etc. But this, you can probably appreciate how sort of blanch the a couple of the fingertips are. He had already lost the phalanx here, and this patient had also pretty, you know, painful hand throughout. I mean, the whole hand was actually quite painful, and we needed to, in this case, and you cannot really see it here, we would do 
blocks of the median nerve and the ulnar nerve to try to kind of numb them up before actually doing the injections that are done. As you can see, some of the points there uh, is a very diluted technique where you want to make sure that it spreads nicely throughout the vasa, vasorum, nervorum, et cetera. And this patient has actually, after being at risk of losing a couple more, he had an ulceration here. You can barely, you know, kind of see like a little scab there. And I have another couple patients that have actually continued doing well, less sensitivity in the hand, and they haven't lost any of the distal phalanx, you know, which is actually quite remarkable. This is a case of post-radiation fibrosis, patient that had actually a radical neck dissection with, you know, very fibrous area there, severe pain in the area as well. This is actually a patient that was injecting using like a grid pattern, not actually intramuscularly, because in fact, when you go deeper in patients like this, not only is the muscle very thin, but has been very uh, fibrotic, and you kind of feel like the needle going like, you know, because it's actually all fibrous tissue. And this patient had a very bad case of four-quarter pain. The whole shoulder was bothering him, and injections in a grid pattern throughout the entire shoulder here actually produce very significant, like, life-altering uh, results that actually were opioid sparing. In fact, the reason why this patient was referred to me for, you know, to begin with was that this was a gentleman that had actually breached the opioid agreement and they didn't want to give him any opiates anymore because he was abusing them, etc. And this is somebody who actually did quite well with this technique as well. Other uses, some of them are actually mentioned here, and the one that I want to specifically mention is the peripheral nerve injuries and peripheral neuropathies. There was a study I don't have that slide here, but it was published in the Lancet Neurology latter part of February this year, where there was a group uh, clinic in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and a couple of clinics in France, where they actually used, they pulled a bunch of patients with uh, peripheral nerve injuries, many of them post-surgical, post-traumatic, uh, all sorts of different kind of distal neuropathies in the hands and in the feet, and they actually showed that when you inject it in a grid pattern similar to what you do for the hyperhidrosis, you basically inject subcutaneously 1.5 to 2 centimeters apart, five units of Botox in the area that is allodynic and hypersensitive, you can actually get significant results in terms of their sensitivity, their, their you know, uh, pain scores, etc. So that was actually published recently. And there's some folks that have actually published some of this related to peripheral neuropathy and diabetes, complex renal pain syndrome, other things that are, you know, small case series, a few cases here and there. So that's another potential target. This one, it actually varies. In that study, they injected up to 300 units of Botox, depending on the area that you're treating. If you're treating a pretty large area, it will be more than if you're treating a smaller area. For instance, this one is a lady, a young lady, that had a post-traumatic uh, like, you know, one of the branches of the superficial peroneal that got injured uh, traumatically. She ended up having, you cannot really see it here, but there's a scar here. So she had surgery uh, in that area because she had, like, shrapnel wound. She's a, a, a lady veteran. And developed this area of exquisite, you know, very severe tenderness to the point that she could not really use a lot of shoes, any straps, shoes, and et cetera, in this area because of the sensitivity. We map basically the area of, significant allodynia and dysesthesia injected in a great pattern, and she did actually remarkably well as well. So are you just like with the muscle 
sub Q. Sub Q. Yeah. Are you doing Yeah, important. Yes. Yes, you have to do it. Usually, the, the, that's the good and the bad of toxins. They are not permanent, which is a bad thing when you have a great result because you're going to have to repeat it. If you have any kind of bad result or any kind of side effects, you're just going to wear off. So uh, the, for indications like this, you typically see that it may last longer than the usual three months, but rarely more than probably four or six months. Occasionally, you see it going a little bit longer, but, you know, and again, some patients, it doesn't really work. So it's just another option that you may have, okay? There are other toxins out there, so just to be familiar, these are mostly in other countries. You know, this one more recently developed in bio, biotech company in Korea. Uh, there are many counterfeits out there, so the companies that actually manufacture this, they have introduced a lot of safety, you know, safeguards, you know, like holograms and the label uh, and things of that sort to make sure that you're really using the, the actual product. But, you know, just to make you aware, this, the, the Chinese botulinum toxin has been widely used uh, with a lot of problems, by the way, because very little quality control, et cetera. In Central America and South America particularly, a lot of colleagues that I talked to that, that practice there, they do have a lot of, they've had a lot of issues with this. Some countries that have actually, that have formularies, you know, namely Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, that sometimes the formulary is actually controlled by the government, and they have, say, they mandated a swap from one to the other. They have seen some issues with that and particularly with the, with the counterfeits. But just uh, basically to, to conclude, there are a lot of clinical trials, and just wanted to point this out. This was actually a search I did beginning of uh, uh, August before submitting the, the final talk. And you can see some of the stuff that's going on. This one is the study that was completed that actually got published in Lancet Neurology, the one that I just told you about, that was from France, but it was in France and, and Brazil. You know, pelvic pain in the endometriosis, you know, these folks at Minneapolis are continue doing things regarding uh, joint pain. Um, cervical brachial, myofascial pain at UCLA, thoracic outlet, neuroma, etc. And, you know, again, as I mentioned before, totally replacement uh, persistent pain at Minneapolis as well. And even others that are even more, you know, interesting, you know, ganglion impart injections for proctalgia, psoriasis, perineal disease, vaginismus, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, I just wanted to give you a bird's eye view. There's a, we could talk, and there's a lot of controversy about this, but I just wanted to give you a picture of some of the potential uses and to keep this in mind as a potential use in patients that have actually very resistant problems with this. And with that, I want to thank you.